This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency. Hello there and welcome to the weekend edition of the Territory Story Podcast, all weekends with Bolshie. My name is Peter Gowers. This guy's name is Leon Logan-Nathan. How are you, mate? I'm good, but I don't think it's weekends with Bolshie. Why not? I think it's long weekend with Walshie. <laughs> it's the big weekend with Walshie. <laughs> that's right. That means we get more blockbuster stories, doesn't it? Oh, let's see. Let's see. Well, let's get him on. The special guest, the Heather Locklear and the unofficial mayor of Clowntown, Christopher Walsh from the NT Independent Online Newspaper. Hello, Walshie. Hey, guys. Good to see you both. You uh, too. Everyone's yeah. back from their COVID uh Time yeah, off I, and cops. I heard, you, and I heard you were talking smack about me last week, Walshie. I was. Jeez, yeah, where, I'm missing where? the podcast. <laughs> yeah, just around town, you mean, yeah. I believe the term was weak that was used. Right, yeah, fair enough. Actually, that's, oh. la- that, that, that's pretty soft for Walshie. I'm expecting a lot worse. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry, there's an article coming out next week. <laughs> well, where Where was Leon really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, um, I, I probably got a little bit, <coughs> pardon me, a bit worse than you did, uh, Chris. You yeah. seemed to get over it after a couple of days. I think that took <clears> about four days to get over it. Yeah. Well, but, that's good, though. Yeah, glad, uh, glad to have seen it off. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Meanwhile, uh, Pete's over there coughing a lung out, and he reckons he hasn't got COVID. But <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say he's got long COVID. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> I haven't had the damn thing. I've been coughing for six weeks. It's killing me. Oh, you might as well just get it and you know, yeah, <laughs> be done with it. Yeah. <laughs> it really just seems like I know that they're reporting only about 500 cases a day. But clearly, there's more than that going around right now, and like oh. everybody I know has it at this point. Oh, no. I so know. I it's now a bit off. of a it's now a bit of a standing joke that uh, if you don't test, you don't have it. So um, yeah. it seems that's uh, the the latest theory I'm hearing the most of. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and they're not reporting it to the government yeah. if they do have it. So hey, talking of which, uh, I took a trip out to East Arm to collect the uh, rat tests, uh, seeing as there's 130 million of them. Up. Thought, well, as we'll go and get a few. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. yeah you're entitled to a couple. Uh, and I noticed it was right next door to your office. Yeah, it is. How yeah. convenient! Like, I'm sure. I'm sure they did that on purpose. And <laughs> so, what I can tell you, like, I, I don't know. We have an FOI how they actually chose that, but it's not the best place in the area. It's not the best facility to use it in. There's others that have two entrances, but anyway, they wanted to put it next to us, so that's fine. So back in January. It was crazy. It was just bumper to bumper. There were near accidents up there, near collisions every every day, like multiple times a day. And then you, we could just see how it started to slow down. And like now, it's hardly anybody out there. Before it was like lined up on the street. And uh, yeah, but I, I must say this though, that I, I've noticed anecdotally again in the last week that there's been a lot more than there had been for the past month or two. Ah, interesting. So, yeah. Because I went out there on Tuesday last week. Yeah, that would have nobody been. there, and yeah. I felt so. There was like, three lanes, all of them up there, you know, <laughs> yeah. kitted out with their hazmats and everything, in thirty-five degree heat. It was, yeah. yeah, couldn't have been fun, surely. No, and now they're just yeah sitting around. Yeah, it is a great way to drop a few pounds, though. So uh, <laughs> you can volunteer to do that job and lose a few pounds in that heat, wearing all that gear. Well, talking about dropping a few pounds, uh, Pete, uh, the first story of the night. 
the ex-treasurer of the old treasurer, Sid Sterling, does he still drive that uh, Corvette, Chris, do you know? <laughs> Did he drive a... Yeah, look, that sounds exactly like him, so I'm going to say yes. <laughs> yes, he <laughs> he, he, had a, he had a little red Corvette, um, <laughs> which he used to drive around. Uh, yes, I, I know Sid. Uh, in fact, he mentioned me in Parliament once because I was uh, upset with... Oh, no, no. What, i tell you what it was. He attended our budget breakfast, yeah. or, or if he didn't, his minders did. And uh, and he said, in Parliament, no less, because I saw it in the hand even Mr. Logan Nathan had nothing uh, to say about this budget, or some words to that effect, as in somehow he, they had impressed me with their budget. Which <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how they got that. <laughs> but, well, uh, it was better than anything we've seen lately, I'm sure, and it probably wasn't very good then. But. In response, Leon said, I'm speechless. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Well, anyway, so Sid Sterling's come out and has asked the government to drop a few pounds in relation to uh, chasing the $12 million for the grandstand. Yeah, that's right. So he's taken a break from his, uh, well, I guess this is part of his position as chair, current chair of Thoroughbred Racing NT to come out. Now, that's, of course, the peak body representing racing and horse racing in the territory. And they're the ones who distribute the funding. And so Sid's determined now that that it's not fair that the, uh, that the Darwin Turf Club has to pay back the $12 million. And he's saying that uh, that, that shouldn't happen uh it's just you know he claimed that it would hurt the economy it would be bad for the entity's economy to pull this out now it's just like so crazy because this guy is making a lot of money off of firstly he created trnt when he was the racing minister and now he's the chair of it and we did a report when we were doing all the grandstand stuff we also looked into trnt and their funding and you know, the ICAC had brought up that, that uh, this government entered into a, a five-year funding arrangement with them that they were they put off with previous CLP. They wanted Labor to come in and set this up. So at the time, Dixon, Brett Dixon was chair both of the Thoroughbred Racing NT and the Darwin Turf Club, which, yes, is a conflict of interest. Uh, but nobody said anything, not Sid. Sid didn't put out a press release at the time saying, yeah, I don't think the chair of this guy should be chair of both. He went along with it. They were all getting paid off here. So, look, he doesn't, Dixon didn't get any money to get to, to sit on the turf club board. But of course, his company was then awarded the $12 million contract to build the grandstand. And of course, all the ICAC investigation ensued over that. Uh, but I think it is just important to point out that, that they did get paid while they were on trnt and so dixon at the time charged tens of thousands of dollars to attend the peak racing bodies board meetings which were organized to coincide with racing events across the nt including for accommodation hospitality and flights sid sterling was right in behind there the costs and payouts to the eight person board totaled more than two hundred and four thousand dollars in 2020 nearly double what was paid out four years earlier before the gunner government first entered into the five-year funding agreement so there are people here who have interests in in how this funding comes in, personal interests, that they're collecting this money, these board fees. Now, we've got it down that the ease paid more than $7,500 per meeting and possibly up to $10,000 taxpayer funds per board meeting. And so anyway, he comes out now and he says, no, I don't think that, that the Darwin Turf Club should have to pay this $12 million back. Uh, and then he, he claimed a petition uh it would create great 
hardship, he said, for uh, the Dharma Turf Club to pay back that money. He claimed a petition would be circulated to seek public and industry support. So I don't know really where he's going there with that, because on the one hand, nobody thinks that they should have even got the 12 million bucks, let alone, you know, build this grandstand and how that all transpired and who got the contract and all of that. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if he thinks the public and industry are going to say, yeah, that's right. Nothing should happen here. I mean, something needs to happen, but you know what? I don't know what's going to happen here, but something surely does need to, there needs to be consequences, as Gunnar says. Um, but since calling it a productive investment, it's already fully booked for the upcoming 2022 Darwin Cup Carnival, more than proving its worth. All grant monies were acquitted in accordance with the funding agreement. Repaying the 12 million to the anti government will cause great hardship, he said to the industry at a time of dramatically increasing costs where participants have not seen any increase in stakes for five years. Really crummy river on that one guy. Like there's so many other people going through so many much more worse stuff than this. This is just, uh, just completely out of touch. Uh, yeah, he gets into, we, we discuss how, how, um, uh, how that funding is distributed. Uh, and remember that in this whole thing, when the grant money was being set up, uh, or being, you know, when the, when it was being discussed that this grant would happen, Sterling was involved, and former Chief Minister Paul Henderson, who worked beha- on behalf both of them of the former Chair Brett Dixon to gain community and political support. This is in the ICAC finding to secure the funding. Sterling had arranged meetings for Dixon with then Treasurer Nicole Madison to obtain her support for the project. After securing the grant, the club gave the contract to build the grandstand to Dixon's company, JTEX, was kicked off the investigation. So, look, the CLPs come out here. I mean, we, they've got an issue on their hands here. And, you know, Gunner's kind of done this right now. It's in there on the top of the story. Gunner's the one who took that flawed business submission into the cabinet to get approval. We found that out after the fact. The ICAC, I think that was probably the biggest shortcoming in his, in his report is that he did not look at how the ministers behaved, how Madison files and Gunner how they got this thing approved, right? I mean, we know a little bit about that, but then I think it was Files who would come out after and said, well, yeah, it was Gunner. He was the one who brought it in. And this was that flawed business submission that was just a complete joke. Uh, that like, you know, a high school student would have done a better job on this. It was drafted that day in order to get the funding. So, but Gunner took it in. Gunner had it in his hand, uh, took it in, clearly didn't even read the thing. Remember, Sean Drapsch told Mary, take this in. This is good stuff. Hang on, uh, but didn't you? Uh, I know we're going over old ground here, but wasn't didn't, well, didn't we have a discussion about this uh, a while back where cabinet submissions are supposed to be correct? Some notice. It wasn't with Chris we talked yeah. about this with. It was with um, uh, yeah, Kenny Vowles. Kenny Vowles. Yeah. 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 He told us seven days' notice minimum for anything that gets discussed in cabinet. Yeah. And so this one just came in. Gunner took it in under the arm, which was unusual at the time. And then we spent a lot of time on that. So this is what has happened now. So the COP, and they've said it before too, uh, back when this first came up, when um, the turf club itself was saying they didn't want to pay the money back. Uh, they're saying Gunner's going to have to pay it back. Gunner and his cabinet, uh, they're the ones who supported the turf club in the preparation of its submission to government. Remember, um, Elf Leonardi had sent that handy little sheet, just fill this in here and we'll get you the money, whatever you need. Uh, Michael Gunner and his labor colleagues, uh, Mary Claire Boothby said, CLP MLA, Michael Gunner and his labor colleagues made a $12 million funding decision without any proper process. The only people who should be paying back that $12 million is the incompetent chief minister and his labor colleagues. 
Yeah. So it shouldn't I mean, be an issue though, because we know that they spend in batches of twelve million. So yeah. it should be all good. You know, they can yeah. just get rid of a social media department, they'll be all good. <laughs> Cash will be there. Yeah, that's right. Well, <laughs> look, they're they're having a hard time finding savings just to keep the budget, you know, moving here, balanced. Um, so I I don't. Yeah, they're not. They're certainly not getting that out of taxpayers. I don't know what's going to happen here because Gunner seems to think that this was a good move. That this was something that the public wanted. At this point, I mean, it, it just continues to raise the specter of this whole scandal that that. The gunner was in the center of as much as he's washed that away and uh, let it try to bounce off him and blame Elfley and Hardy for everything. It just keeps blowing up in his face here every time this comes up. So, you know, and, and to say that he needed, he wants that 12 million bucks back because something wrong happened. Remember, it wasn't the horse's fault, it was somebody else's, and he never said who. But there needs to be consequences here, and that's what he was trying to do here. So if he if he backtracks on that and says, "Okay, yeah, you can keep the money," well, it has to come out of him. There has to be, I, I, I don't know, like he resigns. I don't know what happens here, but this was this was totally mishandled, as the ICAC investigation found, and yet still nobody's been held accountable for anything. Yeah, well, that's pretty normal, Chris. Yeah, you, you said you say that as though there's a problem with that. Mm. Well, there's a big problem, but uh, yeah, it's never going to get resolved. <laughs> Whether it gets dealt with. Yeah, a couple of years doesn't seem like it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. All right. Well, look, um, let's move to the next story. And um, the Deputy PM has provided some more details on the Middle Arm Port Project, describing it as a vital gateway. What did Ted Cruz say? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, well, he showed up in town. Now he was... He was shooting his mouth off as he's want to do uh, about how all of this funding. So now remember guys, this was, we talked about this briefly, I think a couple of weeks ago when we were trying to figure out what it was. So it's 1.5 billion in the, uh, in the federal budget here for this uh, port, a kind of second port out of middle arm. Uh, and so we didn't really know a lot about that. There's of course a lot of conjecture over the defense aspects of it, that it could be for national security, given the uh, controversial Lambridge uh, lease of the, the existing Darwin port. And then what does that mean? Why do we need another port here? So he, Barnaby was in town to say, to, to explain to us that, um, that this new facility is needed, that it will drive economic growth in the NT. Uh, will effectively become the city's second port. Uh, but he said the new port of Middle Arm will become a world-leading industrial hub for gas processing, hydrogen, and minerals processing and refinement, which would be used to export more gas and minerals to Southeast Asia. He says this will make Darwin not only a port, but a vital gateway, a real gateway to the wealth of Southeast Asia. Our investment will deliver this, supporting port infrastructure, including a wharf and offloading facility and dredging of the shipping channel. Uh, yeah, and uh, to assist us in growing our gas exports, our critical mineral exports and development of hydrogen. It is making sure that this port becomes one of the premier ports in Australia. So, yeah, he was asked about the uh, Darwin's port lease to Lambridge Group, saying, of course, Australia still owns the port. Uh, but he said Australia must become stronger. Our nation must become as strong as possible, as quickly as possible. And what we're doing here at Middle Arm with $1.5 billion dollars just in this announcement, uh, is going to be transformative, bringing in close to $16 billion worth of private investment. 
Now, in terms of all the defense stuff, Peter Dutton, of course, the defense minister and even finance minister Simon Birmingham have not ruled out the Newport being used by defense at some point. So we're still not clear on on exactly what's going on there. That's a shock. Yeah, what the (laughs) uh, the future plans are, how that's going to work. But and, and, you know, the other thing about this, that was really weird. And I saw it on a ABC story. That Mac Garrick did, uh, and he had asked Nicole Madison, the deputy chief minister, multiple times. Did you guys see that? Where she refused to call it a port. Oh, <laughs> it was, was it a mooring? It was right bizarre. <laughs> yeah, that, it was uh, a multi-use facility. Ah, <laughs> yes. A wharf and a multi-use. Oh, that, that must support, right? It must be wheelchair friendly then. <laughs> yeah. yeah, look, uh, yeah, she just w- refused to say the word port. Uh, kept calling a multi-use facility anyway. Barnaby Joyce, as he's known to do, just called it what it is, support, uh, and said that it would help reduce Australia's reliance on imports as well. It's, Darwin is going to be one of the hubs of manufacturing in Australia, he said. So we know that, yeah. Go ahead. I just want to ask a question, right? Because this all sounds wonderful in theory. And this is the second time this week that I've heard Darwin get referred to as, you know, a, a vital gateway. Yeah. Do we actually think anybody believes that other than just giving lip service to it? Does it get treated as vital gateway status in any way, shape or form? Well, no, I mean, that's why we've got the, the situation that we had here, right? Like I was saying before, that the Fed's never invested in this. I mean, you had successive governments of different political stripes going to Canberra saying, hey, we want you to invest in this port here. We think we are a gateway. <laughs> and they had no interest in that whatsoever. Now they've got $1.5 billion to throw around for this. Mm-hmm. But I, I think, like, and we're going to get into this a bit more of what exactly this is, this facility out there, yeah. because I, 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 it's still not clear. I mean, you can say, you know, Barnaby can call it whatever. Um, but they had actually done a, uh, ABC had a pretty good story by Jesse Thompson up about that. Uh, the plans to industrialize middle arm could cause significant health impacts, a government environmental report warns. So this whole industrial precinct out of middle arm is going to be essentially this area where they're manufacturing, as we said, their minerals, uh, uh, hydrogen, petrochemicals. I mean, they, they're going to be using natural gas there to make plastics and paint Mm. and things like that. So, you know, you got Paul Kirby running around telling people, you know, banning plastic knives and forks from being used at (laughs) Mendel Markets. And meanwhile, (laughs) his government is building a facility that actually will produce it. On an industrial scale. Yeah, yeah. Like, I've been talking to people this week about that, and we're going to have more stories about this because... Yeah, we, we don't really know enough about it. And good good job on the ABC to get this uh, this government environment report. Yeah. Because that shows that. And now remember, this is all back with the Turk, the Territory Economic Reconstruction Commission, and our old mate uh, Liveris, who, yeah, just happened to have yeah. run Dow Chemicals for <laughs> however many years. And so mm. they go to him and they say, right, what can we do to rebuild the economy after the pandemic and he said i know petrochemicals manufacturing my friends and you do it right there at middle arm not fire from palmerston either and uh seems like uh, the obvious choice yeah i mean look and, but you know you're talking yeah they're saying it'll create twenty thousand jobs now what that report found too was that the uh that the government was required to submit under the environmental proof process which noted its proximity to residential palmerston and ranked the risk as uncertain 
uh, you know, and the environmental advocates have labeled the report incredibly concerning, saying this is all occurring within three kilometers uh, of suburbs in Palmerston. You look anywhere around the globe, uh, you're not finding massive petrochemical refineries right next to suburbia. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was um, that's true. Uh, yeah, that was Jason Fowler from the Environment Center and T-Tail and ABC. Uh, yeah, so they were, yeah, their concerns about threatened species as well as migratory shore, shorebirds uh, and habitat could be impacted. 1,500 hectares of land proposed to be cleared for the precinct as well. Uh, the government saying, the NTN federal government saying they're, they've committed to partnering on a detailed assessment of the precinct to identify and protect environmentally significant areas. Um, but yeah, we, we all got to start paying a bit, bit more attention to this here, and we're going to do some more reporting on exactly what, what this is going to look like, because it's all kind of like, happening here. Like We knew that that Economic Reconstruction Commission report had talked about it, and Gunner said he was going to do something. But now that the feds are kicking in $1.5 billion, um, it's going to get interesting really quickly here. We, we just got to monitor that, I guess, and see what they're doing. Yeah, it sure is. And I was telling Leon this a few days ago, but uh, I watched a, a documentary on uh, the Formosa Plastics Company. And uh, if, if you get a chance to have a look at it, I encourage anyone, check it out because the, the damage that those plants can do if mm. it's not maintained and looked after properly is uh, staggering. Wow. Yeah, mm. okay. Yeah, I'm interested in that here now that we're having one in our backyard. Absolutely. Uh, yep. Yeah. Yeah, we're all going to know what's going on there. Right. Well, let's uh, <clears throat> move into federal politics. I mean, we're already skirting around it now as it is. Uh, just before I get into the next story, Chris, uh, yep. what did you think of Albo's um, own goals? Oh, <laughs> uh, where he couldn't <laughs> name the employment rate and the interest rate. Yeah. That, what did you think about that? Mm. Yeah, I mean, he just wasn't briefed. He wasn't across it. He's out of touch. I, uh, I just feel like, isn't that the first thing? should be. You, you know, you kind of like, elections kicked off. Your mind is, uh, you know, briefing you. You know that a journalist is going to ask you <laughs> those two questions. Yeah. Isn't it? It's almost like a cheat test, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. <laughs> On the first day, no less. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, it showed he wasn't prepared at all. Um, don't, don't you think we've, um, well, I felt like we've hit a different stage in these things now because, all right, so he's kicked the own goal. Um, Labor's home and hosed favourites, if you want to call them that, to win this. And the reason why we knew that it was a real win for the Liberals and a, a bad move for Labor is because the sports bet odds changed so much. Oh, yeah. Like, seriously, that's where the world's got to now. So because <laughs> even though I think the Liberals are three bucks to win and Labor was like a dollar ten to win, they blew out to a dollar thirty-five. But the Liberals didn't come into anywhere under three bucks. But I thought, gee, that's the state of play. You can basically gamble on everything these days. Yeah. Absolutely. And and the best money is for Clive Palmer getting a seat. Yeah. (laughs) Pays about 67 bucks if he gets a seat. Right. (laughs) Have have you all noticed, like, every single day on the front page of the Australian and the NT News is a yellow banner? Yeah. Uh, 
how much must he be spending on? <laughs> yeah, tens of millions. And yeah, it's crazy. Um, yeah, and he's running some candidates here. We'll get around to exploring all of those uh, in the coming days. Uh, sorry, I saw, uh, I, I t- <laughs> it shouldn't be a surprise, but I saw Raj Sampson's Raj uh, yeah. <laughs> today <laughs> as I was driving. He's having another crack, is he? <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. For the seventh time, the charm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if I got him back on the podcast, what on earth could I possibly talk to him about? You know, <laughs> oh, well, ask him about the incident at the wharf where he let his mate drown. <laughs> That's pretty, yeah, nasty. He business. let his mate drown. Well, we did the story about it. So, a guy drowned at uh, Stokes of Wharf a few weekends ago, and, and Raj then went on Facebook and said that he was a good mate of his. And uh, the 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 teen, there were two teen girls there who were imploring him to save his friend after he fell in the water. And Raj told them, "Oh no, no, me and water don't mix. I can't do anything for him now." Uh-huh. Uh, now, keep in mind, the guy was a doctor, allegedly, or whatever. He said he was a doctor. He worked in a hospital. I guess we can be safe and say that. But anyway, I don't know. Apparently, that can't swim really- though, right? I don't know. I don't know what. But then there were some teen boys there who actually jumped into action and and tried to save the guy's life. And they were being heralded by the police's heroes uh, for trying their best. And I guess Raj was just back in the car, back in the truck, <laughs> you know, waiting. So I don't know. He he described it all on Facebook. We put some of it into a story about that. He's he seems to get out on a lot of adventures around town. Raj does. Right. Goodness. <laughs> okay, well, um, what are the odds of Senator Sam McMahon winning her seat uh, now that she's running for the Liberal Democrats? Yeah, I, no, I don't think it's going to be all that high. Good on her for sticking with the Liberals, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> she knows who she is. Remember that. Yeah, look, I, I don't know if you gauge the reads and stuff and stuff. People weren't too interested in this when it happened, and I don't know how that translates overall, but... You kind of get that. I mean, you can look on Facebook when people are, you know, when the other media companies are doing theirs too, how many comments, how many shares and stuff things get usually engage interest. And I don't think this stuff really caught on. Now they did do the formal launch here earlier this week with Campbell Newman, of course, the previous, the former uh, premier of Queensland. This is his party. He's the leader. He's running a, a slate of candidates in Queensland, the NT, and I believe some other places. Uh, so yes, Sam McMahon had announced, uh, that she will be following months of speculation. In fact, I found a story that I wrote back in, um, back in January saying she had jumped to the liberal Democrats because we had it from sources and then she denied it saying, no, no, no. So I, we never ran the story, but the draft is there. Um, so yeah, she's confirmed now this week following months of speculation that she would be running for Liberal Democrats uh, for the as their Senate candidate, and also that her electoral officer Kylie Bonani. You guys remember her? She had also recently resigned from the CLP. Uh, we spoke about that. She's going to run as the party's lower house candidate in Solomon. Um, and then the other guy, Jed Hansen, who was the CLP vice president, he's also, I think, second on the Senate ticket now. He's joined the Liberal Democrats as well. And then you had, um, I think it was, it was late last week that uh, Peter Stiles and Linda Fazeldine both resigned. Also, pretty high-profile people, of course. Stiles was a former deputy chief minister, 
Uh, and they're married, by the way. <laughs> I don't know if the NT News knew that or not when they wrote their story about how, oh, these two separate people just happened to resign at the same time. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so some stuff going on there. I mean, with the CLP, everybody does appear to be abandoning it and jumping ship. And then, you know, maybe it has something to do with some of their more wild policy ideas that they're throwing around at branch meetings. Uh, anyway, we'll talk about that later on. Uh, so this week, though, was about that, that, uh, yeah, that Sam McMahon, of course, we all thought that, that maybe she was done in politics here and, and gave every indication near the end that she was, uh, but had resigned from the CLP, sat as an independent uh, in the Senate and now has has jumped ship and is now with the Liberal Democrats, she said. Uh, in the press conference, I'll be quite honest, I've had a fair beating from politics, she said. Um, I was happy to step away, but I've exercised my female prerogative to change my mind, and that is what I've done. And I'm here <laughs> to announce that I will be contesting the next election in the Senate for the Liberal Democrat Party. Uh, she also said that the decision to seek re-election was based on, quote, a great desire from many, many territorians to have me continue to represent them. I've accomplished quite a lot in the three years. There's more to do. So, um, yeah, yeah. So that's what's going to happen. And then Kylie Bonani, now the Liberal Democrats are a small party that adheres to, as they say, classical liberal or libertarian philosophies, uh, including promoting smaller government. The party's website says it stands for greater freedom, smaller government, and personal responsibility. Uh, Campbell Newman, when he was in town this week, also uh, did some media. I think a big thing for them is running on the uh, vaccination stuff, that the government's acted too quickly and overreached in uh, in the vaccinations. I, I, I don't know. Like, if you look at the numbers, I don't know if that's going to work. I mean, maybe in other places. I'm not sure that that's a big one here, but they certainly will be running more stories and give a breakdown of everything that they stand for and what they're pledging this time around. Uh, yeah. So look, the federal elections kicked off and it's going to get interesting. I'm sure. Campbell Newman was the bloke that, um, former Brisbane Lord mayor who won spectacularly. And then after one term got dumped, is that right? Yes. Yeah. In fact, he was actually, it was almost like he was made the leader of the party before he was even elected. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he was from outside parliament, which is funny. The irony there is that that's what Peter Stiles wanted to do after he got thrown out in 2016. And Gary and Lee over there, Stiles then brought it up with the party. Hey, what if I'm the leader from outside parliament? And (laughs) that didn't go very far. So there's a connection there this week. Well, there was a stage when anybody could be leader of the CLP and the MT. Yeah. Day by day, you had to keep your wits about you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so, yeah, look, yeah, we got this new party now in town. We'll see what happens. I think that uh, Jed Hansen was talking today about uh, possibly registering them as a territory party for the next election coming up, too. So, whether or we not. We definitely that- need another one. <laughs> yeah, well, we saw what happened with Territory Alliance. Um, yeah. Not sure that's the same, but uh, anyway, I guess we'll see how they do on this. I guess really it'll be interesting to see what kind of um, resources they're throwing at this. Now, we know that mm. Tina McFarland's running for the CLP, and a lot of them were angry about that. Now, I, you know, and we talked about that issue about how um, Jetta brought that up 
that some people maybe didn't want her to continue being the the candidate. I'm not sure what resources the CLP is giving her. Like to me, it doesn't seem they did a story the NT News about how she didn't live in the uh, in the electorate. I don't know if you guys saw that. She doesn't live in Solomon. She lives just outside Solomon. Um, but they, I mean, what does that actually mean? Well, I know, these ridiculous. days nobody cares. I mean, no. In fact, Lingiari, as if, if I'm not mistaken, takes into some part of Nucky's Lagoon. Yeah, 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 part of Palmerston. Yeah, you know, um, the expensive part, so, <laughs> Leon's part. Yeah, <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, it didn't make sense, but I just I was really surprised that there wouldn't be a statement or a comment from Tina or the party on that because that's a pretty easy one to deal with. So I don't know, and I haven't seen a lot of her signs around. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it'll get down to running campaigns, I guess. But look, I think you're looking at the front runner here being Gosling, of course, the incumbent, the Labour uh, member for Solomon now. Uh, although he only, what, he only 3%, I think he won by last time. So that's not a huge margin. Well, this but, has been a marginal seat for ages. Oh, yeah. Back when, yeah, forever. Yeah, it was... I mean, you had before him, uh, who was it? Um, Natasha Griggs, and then you had... uh, uh, Dave. Damien Hale. Damien Hale. Dave Tolner. Dave Tolner, and then Labor's Dave Tolner, Damien Hale. Yeah, (laughs) so it just flips around. Um, Yeah, so we'll see. I I think that was something, too, that, like, if Gosling wins, this would be the third. And I think he'd be the first one here to actually win three terms. Uh, yeah. Solomon, so. In fact, I did reach out to Luke over the weekend and asked him if he wanted to come on the podcast to have a bit of a chat about things, um, which he said he did, but then he wanted to do it in person, Pete. And uh, oh, yeah. I wonder how that worked out last time, Leon. Yeah. Very well for <laughs> how did that work out? <laughs> when when well, Gosling came I, on. I believe I was accused of being just a little left of Hitler. <laughs> 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 who gives who you that Gosling? <laughs> it was a bit of a misunderstanding, I think. But uh, yeah, apparently I was a I was a made man for the Liberal Party, which I, I find hysterical. But um, well, keep listening uh, to to the, those people that think that Pete's uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. actually the hun because we've got a few, a few more stories to go. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> All right. Well. I think you're next, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I was just wondering where you're headed then, Leo. <laughs> let's let's have a look at the next story, and um, I, I know what the I know what the the story is with this story. I'll, I'll tell you afterwards. But uh, Civic and State Square's costs are ballooning to close to two hundred million dollars from the original twenty million dollar announcements. Now I know why this is. Well, why don't you go first, then, Pete? <laughs> it was a typo. Oh yeah. <laughs> 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 Nothing short of a typo. I uh, yeah, look, that's that sounds like something they might try. <laughs> it's plausible. Yeah, yeah, we missed a decimal point there somewhere. Uh, yeah, look, this was a, a bit of a, a longer piece that uh, David Wood tackled here, and this was you know like last week. So, like I told you guys, we try and do this right. Like honest to God, we try to do this. They put out positive news that looks positive. We think, okay, well, let's let's run this on. Like, this is good. Like, we need positive news. But we can't, you can't just blindly let the government run what they want, right? And I know that some other agencies, news agencies do that. Anyway, we have to look at it, right? So they put out a release saying, oh, yeah, the $145 million tendered to design and build the next part of the State Square project is, is going out, right? And so 
with a weight of 145 million. Like, what the hell is going on here? I don't remember that number before. Like, that is a lot of money. That is a lot of money for a cash-strapped government that's been broke for since 2018, really, before that. So we started looking at this, and I, and I, yeah, and so what he really went in here, and he started going through the old press releases about all of this. And, um, you know, when they first announced it, and he, and he determined that it's about, yeah, 10 times now. So it's, you know, we got the 145 million, but that's mixed in with some other things. It's close to about $200 million now. And back in the day, it was the original figures estimated it to be roughly $20 million project when it was first announced, middle of 2017. So, uh, yeah, it was... So, look at that. April 24, 2017 is when they first announced the state square redevelopment. Now, they were elected in August 2016, so this isn't a lot of time, but I remember this being one of their key things. They wanted to just redevelop and redesign all of that. Mm. So, it became part of, you know, the bigger city deal uh, where the federal government would spend a hundred million and the territory government said it would also spend a hundred million over four years. Now, this was like later on past 2017 when the whole <laughs> city deal started being talked. But the state square project has expanded now over time with the inclusion of nearby civic park, but with no public acknowledgement that it had actually expanded. So the federal government's now 2021 city deal uh, progress report published in November showed there was $194.5 million in Gunner government spending that had already been spent or allocated for works. Wow. It's, it was supposed to be 100 at one point. And before yeah. that, it was supposed to be 20, right? So yeah, it yeah. quietly keeps going up. Um, yeah, even for a, a press release from June of last year after the budget had been released, still referred to the, their entire city deal contribution as being 100, but the feds are showing it's it's 200 now. Um, yeah, it's just, you know, and then you've got the CDU thing and that whole campus. So the total amount to be spent by the territory and federal governments and CDU could now be up around $540 million. So, and that's to build the campus and all that thing and tie that all in. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if, if we're surprised by this or not, but this is what happens. Um, but, you know, like, keep in mind that this was, you know, after the Langelam report that all these costs start ballooning and they were told to cut down on costs. And if they don't, you know, we were talking about the net debt stuff that we were looking at a $38 billion debt by the end of the decade, uh, we're Money's cheap, Chris. Money's cheap, man. Yeah, right. yeah. So, Chris, but they promised for- they promised that they wouldn't do that, that they would fix that and they would rein in spending. And here is a perfect example of what they've done wrong the entire time. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. I absolutely agree with you. And when I read this story, I went back and I thought, okay, let me have a look at remind myself mm-hmm. by looking at some of the mid-year reports. So what I did was I looked at the media report for 20, 2021, which you reminded me before, before we started recording that we discussed this in December on this yep. podcast, right? Yep. Uh, and in in uh, that mid-year report, uh, net debt uh, for 2020, was 99%. That's the net debt to revenue debt ratio. To revenue ratio, yeah. right? So in other words, our debt to revenue is basically cancelled out. You know, yeah, how much we're bringing in or spending compared to yeah, right. what we're bringing in is yep. like it's not it's not sustainable. Yeah. No, it's absolutely not. Our um our fiscal balance, which is basically the the, the deficit uh, the, the budget, 
is one or for 2020-21 was 1.127 billion in the negative. So we ran a budget deficit of 1.127 billion. Okay. Mm-hmm. For so, your, okay let's yeah. go back and have a look. At the risk of being, you know, what, what did you say before, Pete? At, at the risk of being a made man for the CLP. Let's just go back <laughs> uh, and look and see what happened before the, the last budget that the CLP were in power, right, which was 2016. Hmm. In 2015-16, the outcome was a deficit budget, Chris, if you can believe this, mm-hmm. of $78 million. Mm. Mm-hmm. So we've gone from a deficit budget of seventy-eight million in fifteen sixteen to last financial year. Being what was it? One point two. One point one two seven billion. One two seven. I mean, this is and that's, that's just the annual times. This yeah. is annual. This is yeah. annual. This is not cumulative. Yeah, I you want know, to talk about cumulative, Chris? Yes, cumulative. The net debt in two thousand and fifteen sixteen. Was one point eight five billion, and I think we knew that, right? Yeah, we've, we've talked about that. Saying one point eight billion, yeah. it's there yeah. in black and white. One point eight billion. It is currently six point seven six four billion, and projected to reach seven point seven eight two billion yeah. by the end of this financial. By year, the end of June. June. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, eight billion, and now that's. According to that that major thing, that was a, a billion dollar improvement on what they were. Yeah, now, I'm going to. I'm not going to say for one minute the CLP are going to be able to come in and fix this. No. I don't think they are. Yeah. <laughs> right? I don't. So, for all you labor guys that are listening to this, thinking that we, this is a CLP funded <laughs> podcast, right? And hey, let me tell you, it's not funded by anyone. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't think they are, but. How the hell, Chris, did we get from there to here? These kind of projects, these kind of just not paying attention to the details here, just letting things get out of hand, blow out, not reining it in, not being concerned, being more concerned about collecting their own paychecks or maybe having legacy projects. <laughs> I mean... No, but uh, I, I, I said before as a joke, and I'll, I'll reiterate it, that... On this very podcast, we asked this question, and the member for Wentworth said it, and the former member for Wentworth said it as well, money's cheap. And I say it taking the piss, but these people genuinely think that's a a legitimate response. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, unfortunately, that is it. And, yeah, there just doesn't seem to be the accountability here for this. Now, you you talk about that, like I brought up that Langeland report and saying, you know, it was what, 35.8 billion. I think it was, it might have said 38. But by the end of the decade, I mean, you're in the high 30 billions. Um, They made a commitment at the time. Like they knew that it was a problem in December 2018 that they called all of us together a week before Christmas, journalists to say, yeah, we're in a financial crisis. And also, do you guys have any ideas? On what we could do. Remember, they actually were asking the public. So COVID came and rescued them. Yeah, well, you would think. Now, I'm looking at the Auditor General's report, and uh, I'll have a story on that at some point here. I've just been really busy, and I only got about halfway through. But it was she basically audited what they've accomplished with the Langland, and it's nothing, and it has nothing to do with COVID either. This is just a government that just does not have any 
care whatsoever of, of how it's managing the finances of this place. And I, I'm just like, uh, to come out to make a big deal like that, to say that we're in a financial crisis, we've got to make some tough decisions now, but then not make those tough decisions. And when, you know, at that budget, the next year's budget in 2019, I said that to her, what, what? And she's like, well, we, we did the heavy lifting. We're doing the heavy lifting. And we're like, no, excuse me, treasurer. What heavy lifting are you doing here? I don't see anything. You're just continuing to do exactly what you've always done. And for some reason, I guess expect, I don't even think they expect a different result. They don't care. They just will keep going and they figure out, shit, if we're lucky, we got another two years here. We're going to get thrown out because the the public's turning on them on not just the finances, but crime, um, you know, corruption, all kinds of issues that the the people are just sick of on handling of the COVID now where he wants to put us all in a state of emergency for two years, perpetual emergency, but people are fed up with this. So maybe they think, oh, let's just hang on here until we get out and then it's not our problem anymore. But there's there's absolutely no commitment from this government to manage the finances of this jurisdiction properly. And this is just further proof of that. All right. So it is uh, very, very dis- disappointing and, and quite frankly, quite depressing. Yeah, I know. Because, because I, you know, I... I yeah, I just don't know how you dig yourself out of this hole. Well, you got to start making these t- real decisions and start doing stuff. Like I've seen that before. I've seen governments do that. It's not good. You got to cut things, and I guess they're afraid to do that. Um, but you got to when you're in when you're in leadership position. That's what you're in those leadership position to do is to make tough decisions and, and unpopular decisions at times. But these guys are, are uh, not going uh, to allergic need, to that. They yeah. need the northern suburbs votes, right? Yeah. Which, as we yeah. all know, are filled with public servants who are not going to vote against self-interest. Yeah. And, and so, this is the difficulty that the CLP are going to have. I mean, notwithstanding that, I don't think they're going to be able to fix it anyway. Mm. Um, you know, the CLP can't come out and say we're going to need to make the tough decisions. So they're not going to say that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Labor are going to come out in the next election and just say, "Look, if you vote the CLP, you're going to lose your job." Right, because they're going to come in here and they're going to cut the public service in half. Mm. So this is where we are at, Chris. This is the problem. This is where we mm. are at. And Chris, you say they've got. Yeah, you say they've work. maybe got two years left, <coughs> but I think potentially they've got at least six because well, I, I I can't see the current opposition getting in. No, that's right. But no, but it won't be Gunner, and presumably it won't be Madison, who's who's tied in with him too much. There's too much scandal that's gone on. But why wouldn't There's it be? There's been no consequences for the scandal thus far. Why does that well, have to Well, I know. I think you'd wait till you get to a real election instead of the stuff where they were able to pay everyone off last time, like literally with the COVID <laughs> spending that they drew down that they shouldn't have 300 million bucks there that they just handed out to people. Um, no, I think like, I think the electorate, like I think, when you get into these, and it's going to be interesting, there should be some federal polling done and we'll check, right? Because usually if you do a federal poll, you're going to throw in some local stuff. And I would love to get some polling numbers to read the public. I mean, anecdotally, we can say that the gunner is nowhere near the high that he was at the beginning of the pandemic, that people are really fed up with them. And ultimately, they're the ones who will make the decision. But yeah, I mean, how how to break down? It, it's not going to be good for Gunner. And I'll tell you that it's not good for the Labour Party right now to have somebody like Gunner in there who just disrespects all of the integrity of the institutions that he's the leader of. And, and even the party itself. I mean... Yeah, you, you just get to the point where he's tarnishing with his attitude and the scandals that continue to happen, the party itself. And I know from talking to a lot of longtime Labour members that they're 
kind of heartbroken over the whole thing that this guy's running the party the way he is and running the territory the way he is. So people move on people eventually, Pete. That'll that'll be what happens. And like, mm. yeah, Gunner, Gunner's, you know, so, something will happen in there. Yeah. So we had Lucio Seccarelli. It's not Seccarelli. Jesus Christ. No. Matarazzo. Yeah. We had Lucio Matarazzo on the podcast on Monday, right? And Lucio is a That's former ALP, ALP man, yeah. died in the wool, you know, union dude, the whole bit. And he was lamenting. The, mm. the, the Labour Party. And, and he said some things that were quite surprising, which I didn't realise. You know, people like Charlie Phillips and others had, uh, had uh, quietly exited the building. Um, oh, they got rid of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and apparently the people on the fifth floor that are calling all the shots now are people from down south that are doing a stint up here, you know, yeah. uh, ticking yeah. the box, as it were. Well, you've got some other local. You still got Bilius in there. We're still trying to get an FOI back on her and the, that email during the cocaine sex scandal where I gave them all the information they needed. Right. <laughs> so there are still some people, but yeah, he's right. I mean, they're they're bringing in people like the guy who told the other. Uh, remember, Robin Lamley was talking about Gunner's uh, media guy who told the Dallas Springs businessman to f off the other day, like that kind of stuff too. Like you can't be doing that stuff. Like I know I talked to witnesses. I I know that that actually happened, and the fact that they're covering it up and pretending it doesn't. But that's the kind of stuff that's damaging the party. Like the party. Like I, I I've written that before, right? I think when the 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 young labor guy was up with the cocaine scandal. And I was talking to labor people who said like this just wouldn't have been accepted before. Like this is just destroying the party. The gunner's just there's no he's just letting everybody do whatever they want there, and, and that's not leadership. And you need to have leadership at times. And well, we had God, God, is, we had Kenny Vowles on, and and, and yeah. Ken was saying that it's a cult. Yeah, Chris, yeah. this is the problem. So when you say that you know Gunner doesn't have much time left. I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, it's a cult. <laughs> Who's going to step up? And yeah. you say it's not Madison. I hope to God it's not Natasha Files because no. just looking to her and Katie Wolf is enough for me, honestly. Um, so who else is it? <laughs> it's okay. I think we need someone uh, a bit regal looking, you know, the Silver Fox. Uh, you know, did pretty you well know, like, federally. It's funny, a couple people talk about that, but people <laughs> in the party are not talking about him at all. And I've heard well, he I mean, no, thrown around. No one held up a backline better than Joel. Yeah. <laughs> well, I thought um, it was Wayne Zerby. Okay. It's <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> <laughs> funny. Yeah. That's funny. Um, well, why not, man? Hey. Might have a go here, but you really do better <laughs> than Gunner. Uh, but yeah, no, you hear people's names and 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 rumblings every now and then that they're finally getting their stuff together, the left faction to, to challenge Gunner. But you never get to see anything. One name that was thrown around a lot uh, previously was Eva Lawler. That she would, oh, that no. you know, that she internally actually stands up to Gunner at cabinet meetings and stuff. So somebody thought, but look, not if she's you talk a, to Scott McConnell. I tell you, yeah. That well, look, Eva's Eva's under investigation by the ICAP right now. Oh, like we we know that to be true for for yeah. TIO Stadium debacle. So she's not really in a position to do anything, and it looks like Gunner will just slowly bring everybody down with them around around him and. You know, as much as he thinks he's Teflon or things do appear, I mean, to bounce off him here, I think sooner or later the weight becomes too much and something gives way. And I, yeah, and this, this, this stuff with the money, the spending, out of control spending, just the lack of leadership 
and the scandals. We can't forget the scandals. We'll get more into that. His brother-in-law and all that stuff. Um, scandal play government, and everybody's wearing that now. Well, are we done with this one, uh, uh, Pete? Uh, can I move to the next story? Proceed. Okay. Well, let's leave all of this and get back to, you know, the story of the year. <laughs> Zach Rolf. Yeah. This is a story that keeps on giving, Chris, and uh, you have now pulled out another uh, issue, which I think you alluded to previously. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And that is that the expert in the Rolf uh, committal he- hearing, uh, the American expert, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. um, was dropped by the prosecution before the murder trial. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- which is a bit unusual here for such a high-profile case, especially considering that uh, the prosecution relied on this man's testimony in the committal to get that murder charge up. And in fact, I went back, so it took me a little while to get it up because I had requested the judges, the transcript from court, from the committal hearing, when Judge John Birch made uh, the decision to, to, to send Zach Rolfe to the Supreme Court for the murder charge. He mentions this guy, Jeff Alpert, repeatedly in there saying, you know, it's the evidence, his evidence, and also Andrew Barham, Senior Sergeant Andrew Barham, uh, who we had exposed last week, you know, in these internal emails that we had showed that he had a conflict of interest. At least, look, the head of professional standards command at the time said he had a conflict of interest and was not suitable to be the use of force expert, yet he was also used in the committal. And he was the only one who made it to the trial, right? So that story was raised some really interesting questions, I think, about, well, why would they ignore the head of professional standards? Like, this is the body that that uh, uh, takes the complaints about police investigations, and he said straight up, like, you know, we got a murder trial here, the less conflicts, the better, he was saying. So why do they either they ignore him or they overrule him and they let Barham be the use of force expert for this investigation? So the investigation is compromised. It, it, it clearly didn't deal with the conflict there. But the other part of this investigation. So at the time in that story, we had said how uh, police even knew that 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 Barham wasn't going to be taken seriously by anybody. Right. Like Barham. You know, and then when the guy gets up and says, oh, I have five black belts and, uh, you know, it was just, yeah, uh, look, he's not, he doesn't have the best reputation and in, in amongst all the police that we had spoken to. But anyway, he was at the college a long time and I guess enough said there, right? We know what happened at the college. Um, so anyway, they said, no, no, we're going to get people much higher than him. Now, this is uh, Kirk Panuto. Uh, the leader of that investigation early on, and he says, no, no, we're going to get somebody better. So who they got better than uh, than the local guy, Barham, was this criminologist, uh, Professor Jeffrey Elpert from the University of South Carolina. Now, the, the police investigators in this uh, operation called Operation Charwell, they first contact him in December 2019 as they built their murder case against Rolf. Uh, after failing to attract any Australian experts willing to testify. So we've seen now, we've obtained these emails that show Professor Professor Alpert repeatedly changed draft reports that he was doing uh, after suggestions by detectives investigating the shooting death of Kumanjai Walker 
Uh, also, the tender documents show that he was paid nearly $100,000 for these professional services. So this is, you know, in this Operation Charwell that they set up a, a week or so after, they've already charged Zach Rolf, which a lot of police found very unusual. You'd set up the investigation to determine whether or not charges should happen. But we've already kind of canvassed that at great length about the rush decision to charge and how investigators said, nah, this isn't a, even a complete brief of evidence. So then they set up Operation Charwell, but they charge him. Then they set up the investigation to, to provide to prove that he's guilty of murder. <laughs> and uh, Alpert's paid $100,000. But we've, we do see that in there. And first, I guess when he, when he gets in touch in January the next month, uh, Panuto writes, before progressing our discussion in any formal way, it is important that we make sure we have a good fit. Otherwise, I will struggle to be able to convince my bosses of the value in using your extensive expertise, Panuto wrote. Uh, he then went on to say that it was the belief of investigators that Constable Rolf had disobeyed orders during the attempted arrest of Walker. Uh, and later in the email, uh, Panuto wrote that there was, quote, a lot of subtext not referred to here that is easier left to a discussion via telephone. There were a lot in the emails about, well, let's talk about this on the phone kind of thing instead of putting it in writing. Uh, what we see, though, is that that these that the, the draft reports that, that this professor Jeffrey Alpert starts sending into Operation Charwell, well, he's then dealing with a guy named Wayne Newell. And Wayne Newell starts offering, as he said one time, I've offered a couple of suggestions that you may wish to consider. Uh, and then we see that Alpert wrote that he would make changes on it, on the report, for you to review. And later saw corrections or modifications from Sergeant Newell. So this goes as to whether or not this guy is an independent uh, use of force expert. Uh, and, and it looks like his independence here is compromised. There was one particular thing in the, a draft report dated February 2020, 24th, sorry, 2020, stated that there was an initial failure in communication between officer in charge of Uendamu, Julie Frost, and Rolf's immediate response team, which may have led to the lack of following plans and orders. But the report was also critical of investigators who interviewed witnesses in Uendamu immediately following the shooting. However, when Professor Albert shared his next draft report on February 28th, all criticism of those in charge had been removed. Uh, now we've been following some conversations, so that's interesting. And then that instance on March 30th, where uh, Wayne Newell with Operation Charwell had asked Albert to reconsider a sentence about Sergeant Frost's arrest instructions, suggesting, quote, it may require more context. Professor Albert seemed to uh, understand that, responded on March 31st that it was, quote, more efficient to remove the line. Uh, so you can see the things were, yeah, just questions being raised about the independence of this whole thing. So it ends up that, that you know, this report gets done. Conceivably, he's paid $99,750 for that. Though, I mean, we can't confirm if, if that was it. I mean, the report wasn't even that long and didn't really take him that much time. Why'd they shortchange him the, the 250 they should have given him 250. No, why they short they short changed him 250. Why don't just go for the even hundred? Yeah, that's that's interesting. Maybe that little would have looked too suspicious. <laughs> <It> was, <laughs> you know, like the other thing, and I'm pretty sure when I looked at this thing on on the tenders thing that it was like a, a 36 month contract. 
it was supposed to be for 36 months. Oh, we wow, okay. got it done in, in two months. But maybe they were thinking that, you know, that would include him testifying because he did. Yeah. He never came here, but in person, but he did testify at the trial via video link from the U.S., I believe. Uh, anyway, yeah, for look, the, the you get back in here to what the DPP said. Now, we went to them. Remember that Rolf was charged just four days after the shooting. And it was following a 90-minute meeting with the DPP that included an incomplete and rushed brief of evidence. Current DPP Lloyd Babb defended the rush decision to charge by suggesting earlier this month that, quote, the matter was committed for trial by a local court judge following a contested committal. The local court judge found there was a case to answer, he said. Now, this was a response to a whole bunch of questions about why they rushed it, what facts they relied on to make that call. And of course, again, whether or not just because it was a prima facie case, whether or not they, they base their decisions on that, or as we understand would be more on the reasonable likelihood of, of, of successful conviction. And so that's what he came back with. Like it, there was probably, you know, 15 questions in there. Uh, some of them detailed on, you know, exactly what would happen how they came to this decision that we think, you know, the public has a right to know how the DPP made that decision in, in a 90 minute meeting with, with not all of the evidence there. Uh, and that was the best he could come up with. The local court judge found there was a case to answer at the committal. Well, now we know that one Barham, the police had already said he had a conflict of interest and was not suitable to give evidence. He gave evidence and uh, and this guy, Jeffrey Elford, who's now paid $100,000 and given suggestions on how to edit his uh, his report. These were the two main things. When you look at the committal hearing and the transcript, that's what the judge relied on to, to send Rolf to the Supreme Court. So, uh, yeah, I mean, somebody has to answer some questions here at some point. And right now, uh, we're not getting any answers. And it just looks like bigger and bigger stuff up by the police, by the DPP. Uh, and I think we've got more people coming into this too here after the story that we ran today. I, I don't know how anyone's having any confidence that the things are actually going to be managed properly. Again, we get back into that, but this is like the police. I mean, this is serious. They had a guy, they, they, it, they had these people set up to testify to get him to this, to be charged with murder, to stand trial at the Supreme Court. And it looks like that that was not above board here. Wow. Explosive. Yeah. Explosive. I, I, I mean, I've said this a few times. I'm going to say it again. I just love all the names involved. It's getting more exotic by the week. <laughs> Alpert? The- I love Alpert. I love um, Penudo. Yeah. I think Penudo's first name should be Frank. I think that's got a... Way more. Uh, <laughs> is there a famous Frank Panuto? There should Frank be. Pu- Frank Puncherello. <laughs> <laughs> Short for that. Yeah. <laughs> I just. Um, I'm just waiting for Sipowitz to enter the uh, into the fold. <laughs> oh man, yeah. Like, look, you might as well enter any one of these scenes at this point because that's what this is like, right? It's like mm. some sort of play, some sort of tragedy here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that the keeps going. I mean, the, there doesn't seem to be an end to this every day or two now. We still have a story coming out about mm. new information. Yep. All right. Well, let's uh, 
wait and see next week what uh, update you have for us on that one, Chris. Well, how about I give you another one now? Please. All right, why not? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> it's been 10 seconds. <laughs> yeah, so we did do another story today. So the story today, now we get into this issue. So just to take you back there a minute. So we're at this point where these witnesses, there are question marks around them that led to, to Rolf being sent to the Supreme Court. Now, you would think that there'd be somebody providing oversight in all of this, right? Who might... Uh, well, you'd think. <laughs> well, you'd think wrong. Even though you were told by this agency that they would provide they would be. independent independent oversight. Turns out they didn't. Turns out they just didn't. The ICAC just did not do what they said they were going to do. And look, we know that... And now, how, how you separate any of this too, right? But let me try. Chris, first of all, can I ask, yeah. did they say they were going to provide oversight? Yeah, no, I'm going to show you. I'm going to tell you the conversation I had with Bruce McClintock, the inspector. <laughs> but first, I want you to understand what, what Michael Riches is doing. So Michael Riches is the current independent commissioner against corruption, as we know. Uh, he did come out and he said he's investigating the four days between the shooting and the charges being laid in November 2019. And then that takes up a lot of stuff. There's a lot of allegations. And of course, about political interference, the brief of evidence the DPP relied on that wasn't finished. Uh, all kinds of Jamie Chalker being involved in the meetings and then telling the public it wasn't. Uh, there, there's all kinds of stuff that that's going to get looked at. But there's another issue here, and that is what we've exposed in those other two stories, which is this Operation Charwell that was after Rolf was charged. They then set up Operation Charwell to do the investigation. Um, strangely, one, well, strangely first that it was done after he was charged, but the other part that's strange is that their whole thing is to provide a brief of evidence to the DPP uh, uh, to support the murder charge. I think that's how they word it, to support the murder charge, which is like not what is normally the sequence. It would be gather all the facts and then decide. <laughs> so that's unusual, right? So... But now I'll take it back to November 2019. And we know this. We know what happened internally from inspector, the ICAC inspector, Bruce McClintock's report. Because you guys remember the day after Rolf is charged, Ken Fleming, the then ICAC commissioner, shows up in Alice Springs. I think he organized a Black Lives Matter rally or something. <laughs> Not sure he organized, but he, he gets up at a Black Lives Matter rally and he says... Um, you know, and I'm, I just want you to know whatever you said, corrupt conduct, anyone who 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 doesn't believe Black Lives Matter is guilty of corrupt conduct. OK, so he says that. And yeah, all hell breaks loose for everybody. And there are complaints everywhere. So we go back and we look at the ICAC inspector's report, who he receives the complaints about the ICAC. So he says, yeah, I got six complaints uh, about those comments that Fleming made. And I talked to Fleming and to Matthew Grant, this guy, Matt Grant, who's the general manager, essentially a second in charge at the ICAC. And we all determined that uh, the Fleming shouldn't have anything to do. And I'm going to, I got to read this one to you because um, it, it's, it's, it's very interesting in the conversation that I had with uh, McClintock this week, just, you know, via, via email. Uh, but he had said, um, 
the ICAC received a request. So this was the day before this, right? So according to McClintock's 2020 annual report, quote, the ICAC received a request from local Aboriginal elders who saw independent oversight of the police investigation. And that had had happened at roughly the same time Rolf was charged with murder on, on that day, November 13th, 2019. Uh, the commissioner... Ken Fleming, then Ken Fleming, to explain his independent oversight role, attended a public rally in Alice Springs, McClintock wrote in his report, adding that as a result of the comments made there, um, that the ICAC had received six complaints, forcing Mr. Fleming to stand down from his independent oversight role. McClintock wrote this, I took the view that because of the possible perception of bias on the part of the commissioner, he should not be involved in the ICAC's continuing oversight of the police investigation into the death of Mr. Walker. Right. The continuing, ICAC's continuing oversight of the police and, and when investigation. And did he say that? So, so, and so when did he, he pass that? Statement? So he wrote that in, it would have been December 2019, right? So while this is happening, he writes this because he writes to, to Gunner on December 2nd, 2019, to inform him that Fleming would not personally be providing oversight of the investigation any longer, but that he, McClintock, would continue, quote, to monitor the situation and the ongoing investigation, which is being managed by then ICAC General Manager Matthew Grant, pursue it to an existing delegation. So... There's supposed to be oversight. And what that means is that Fleming couldn't be involved with the ICAC's continuing oversight. It appears that that was then those duties were given to Matt Grant, the second in charge. Now, we know, and the, these other internal documents I had, a memo about Operation Charwell also showed that the it, it had like three bodies up at the top of this flow chart that one was um, the Assistant Commissioner for Crime and Integrity. The other was the ICAC, and the other was the Joint Management Committee, all at the top here. So they were supposed to be involved, and even that chart shows at the highest levels. Uh, however, we know that they didn't do anything. The ICAC was not involved in that at all. Grant was not involved in that. In fact, Michael Riches had said that in, in his earlier statement about it, when he said he was considering whether or not to look into those four days, he had said, I've checked and my office wasn't involved in things from November 15, 2019 to when I came in, in July 2021. So they haven't done it. So I look, I go to McClintock. I went to, to Rich's, sorry. And I said, you know, why didn't, why, why, why weren't you guys involved? I mean, you had elders in UNMU asking to. I mean, this is public. This is all public that, that we needed independent oversight because it's a cop. It's police investigating their own. And that's where I think the UNMU elders thought, okay, well, you know, are they going to be biased towards the officer in this case? And so they wanted that independent oversight, but we all needed independent oversight. You can't let the cops investigate their own on a murder charge like this. So I went to Rich's and I said, you know, I think the public needs to understand exactly what happened here. I mean, you're investigating part of this now, but why wasn't your office involved in the investigation? Now, we've now pointed to like four or five major issues from that investigation that if there was independent oversight provided, probably would have picked up on those conflicts of interest that we mentioned and other things. So he, a, a very bizarre 
response that I got from him. And he, and he just wrote, I commit to explaining the role played by my office in respect of the matter. And when I read that, I said, okay, okay, he's going to explain it. And then he wrote, I appreciate that that should be clarified and I will do so. <laughs> and I thought, okay, here we go. Well, he said it twice. Let's here it comes. It. Yeah. And then he says, I intend to do that at the conclusion of my current investigation. Ah, the soft light down. Yeah, which, look, this is not connected unless it is connected. And we don't know. I mean, there's a lot of stuff here that we don't know, but we know that he's looking at four days. But that's before Operation Charwell and before the ICAC had committed to doing that independent oversight role. <laughs> so he's not investigating himself or his own office presumably by having that distance and choosing those four days. And that might be why he only chose those four days. But he's saying that, that it's going to be addressed at the conclusion of his current investigation. So I don't know what he means by that, but we're going to see. So I actually, so I was so confused and I went back and I said, I'm confused. So, and he said basically the same kind of stuff. So I went to McClintock because McClintock's the guy who was out here quoted saying this stuff. And he's the one to remove Fleming from his continuing oversight of the police investigation. So I asked him now, he surprisingly said in response to questions that he never implied, <laughs> quote, that the agency would oversee the investigation. He said, I never implied that they would oversee the investigation, despite specifically stating in the annual report that Fleming could no longer be involved in the ICAC's continuing oversight of the investigation. Uh, and that he would continue <laughs> to monitor the situation. Like he, he at any point, that. did he say consequences will flow as well? <laughs> he might as well have because, yeah. Um, he said this at the end of an email too. I repeat, it was never the role of the ICAC to supervise the investigation or oversee it in the way you suggest. And I was just suggesting the way he suggested it. Uh, adding, <laughs> he's, <laughs> using, he's using a Jedi mind trick against you, Chris. Oh, no, absolutely. Like this guy, look, he, he's a well-respected lawyer. He's going to do this. I saw what he was doing, his techniques of like, and then just taking something I said and running this whole other argument with it. That was not what I was saying at all. So anyway, I, I kept it kind of short and sweet with him. But anyway, look, one of the things that he did say was that the ICAC was only engaged for, quote, one issue that made a limited engagement appropriate. And that involved police investigating their own. But he did not elaborate on that. So I don't know what that he's saying. I were ongoing. But he had said the ICAC's continuing oversight of the police investigation when he removed Fleming. And now he's saying, well, it was one issue that made a limited engagement appropriate, and we dealt with it about police investigating their own. But then he says, so it follows, therefore, that the ICAC has no responsibility for the failures that you identify in the police investigation, assuming them to have occurred, he said, and myself as inspector, even less, if that were possible. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, yeah. gosh, that's a harsh one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So look, something <laughs> happened here. I mean, Jesus Christ, like for this guy to be saying this now and coming back and I wrote back to him something like, yeah, I guess I was just confused because you said this, <laughs> you directly said this. You can't now say that you didn't say it or you didn't mean it that way. Like it was quite clear. I mean, basically, I wish I could have done the interview with him face to face because I would have said, OK, well, what did you remove Fleming from? Yeah. Because if he's saying that there was only one issue that made a limited engagement appropriate, what did he remove Fleming from? Well, did you, have you got his mm. number? 
No, this is just through email that we, I'm sure I could. He's got a few things on at the moment, Leon. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I'm just really surprised at the, the tone and and the response. It just doesn't feel like someone who's, you know, I don't know. I just, well, he also, he also told me at the end of that, he said, um, you know, some, you're barking up the wrong tree. Yeah. And I felt like saying, like, mm-hmm. really? so there is something here. And I said, like, Bruce, you know, yeah, I want to write back. Barking up. <laughs> yeah, with respect, I'll bark up whatever goddamn tree I want to bark up here. And just because you say that doesn't mean, I guess maybe that works on other journalists. They'd be like, I guess I should leave the guy alone. Well, it makes me more suspicious. by you, Chris. I mean, uh, you yeah. know, I mean, you, you, you did highlight some issues in the past, and I can't recall what they are, but I, I know. Oh, okay. So, yeah. What was it? Do you remember there, there was some? Oh, well, we had another run-in with him, right? McClintock. There was something happened that you had. Yeah, you, you had. Was it a conversation or an email? Yeah, it was an email that, exchange. Where he goes. Uh, was in relation to who he hired as his PA. Uh, yeah. Right Which there. you know what? That's going to come back because because remember that story about in DCM and and how they had manipulated the tender scores to get this one company to provide contract services to hire people and then we found out that those that that one public servant Maria Moore had access to the ICAC inspector's email mm. right and he and it was a similar nasty tone and then he realized uh, I didn't think about that 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 was probably a bad look that we had someone in DCM who was under investigation had access to my emails, mm. um, and he and he just hadn't thought about it, right? And so, um, but that's going to come back a little bit more because you know, with the contract that they hired, who they hired? Go on, say it. Jamie Chalker, the police yeah, commissioner. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that's already come up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we discussed that before. Mm. So. What what the hell's going on there? Anyway, look, we, we we'll get back to this thing with with Charwell because I think we got to. I just want to sum up here kind of what happened. Now I'm I'm uncomfortable with the fact that the McClintock saying that that yeah that he's not being upfront here. This is what he actually said. We were all understood that that the ICAC had some role. There was an organizational chart done internally that showed that they should have had some role in oversight of this. I don't know how that is. I don't know how that works. But you would think that they would have picked up on some of these issues. So, and just to to kind of sum them up. So we revealed last week that the anti-police's use of force expert for the investigation was Andrew Barham, of course, who gave evidence against Rolf despite the head of professional standards command earlier informing investigators he was unsuitable due to a conflict of interest involving his deep entrenchment in the anti-police. Uh, it was also revealed this week that Operation Charwell investigators had paid the American criminologist Jeffrey Alpert nearly a hundred grand for a report critical of Rolf that had been altered after suggestions by Operation Charwell's Detective Sergeant Wayne Newell. Uh, and last week was something that we hadn't done before, uh, and, and we didn't report it, but the Australian reported that one of Operation Charwell's most senior officers, who is now Assistant Commissioner Martin Dole, had a close relationship with Walker's partner's grandfather. And this is Eddie Robertson at Uendamo. Now, Eddie Robertson had referred to Dole as his younger brother in, uh, to investigators, telling uh, investigators that he, quote, used to nurse him when he was a little boy. There were other people who corroborated that, that Martin Dole was very close to Eddie Robertson, who was essentially Kamanjai Walker's grandfather. 
and that they communicated. And this guy was in a lead role in Operation Charwell as they built the case against Rolf. So now that you've got two conflicts of interest that if the ICAC had been doing their job properly, hopefully would have found. Uh, yeah, and that was what I said. Neither Riches nor McClintock would say if proper independent oversight of the investigation would have led to those matters being exposed and managed before the investigation was completed. Uh, yeah, Grant refused to respond to email questions because I'm, I may have missed that point. So Grant... Matthew Grant is second in charge there now. He's put in charge when when Fleming leaves, according to the inspector. He's supposed to be the one providing that oversight. And just remember, guys, that he was the one who took a job as chief operating officer with the NT police uh, late last year. Um, so clearly there were some connections there. So we asked him about that. I mean, why, why go over there? Why didn't you fulfill your responsibility here? As we understood it, that you were supposed to be providing independent oversight. That didn't happen. Why, why did you take this job after that? Anyway, he's not going to respond to questions. Uh, Chalker, of course, similar questions to him did not respond. I believe, um, it fits under that, uh, Wonderful response that you received recently from someone else, Chris. None of your business. <laughs> yeah, you said that. I can't remember. Did somebody tell me that? None of my business? Yeah, I believe they did. Um, Sounds like a Dixon line. No, that was a Dixon line. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how that's going with Dixon of the Hidden Valley. Remember he was buying a pub up there? That's, oh, that's, that's right. Yeah, about. yeah. Um, Anyway, yeah, look, so just the final mine on that, uh, Rich's investigation is expected to include public hearings uh, and would probe Chalkers and other senior public figures' potential involvement in the decision to charge Rolf, as well as initial investigators' concerns over the rush decision to lay charges before, before all evidence could be collected. That's going to be really good, and, and we're hearing that, you know, the word going around is that there will definitely be public hearings, so get ready for some uh, uh, highly influential, powerful people to be squirming in their chairs at some point. And hopefully we can all watch that online. Stay tuned. Mm. Um, but he's going to have to put that. his own people up there too. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> before you leave this story, so is, you, can, you can read this, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. That's the act, the ICAC Act 2017. So- the ICAC Act. Yeah, now, we, um, we can read it, Leon, but the listeners can't. So. <laughs> so I, I happen to have the Independent Commissioner Against Corruption Act 2017. Um, the one thing in this story of yours, Chris, that is troubling me, and that's why I quickly grabbed the Act to have a look to see if I could find the answer, and I can't, mm. is whether the um, you and Demu, you and Demu community could ask, or in fact, whether anyone could ask ICAC to oversee an investigation. Mm. I I can't see that ICAC has that power. They don't have the power to oversee any investigation. Yeah, well, it doesn't look like it. I mean, it might be there, but I'm just looking at it. The only oversight that I can see in this act is the oversight of the inspector um, of ICAC itself. Yeah. So my question to you is... A, does ICAC have the power uh, of oversight in relation to a police investigation? I think when, and well, I don't mean now you've got, 
remember the last we heard police were investigating ICAC over something just before Matt Grant jumped ship hmm. and uh, the ICAC's investigating police over something. But it, look, as I understand it with this, because it was such, such a uh, sensitive issue that the police and I can point to that organizational chart for Operation Charwell that shows that they were to be involved, that they had a major role to play because I think the police understood that there'd be perceptions of the conflict of interest of them investigating their own. I, I yeah. completely understand that. And so that they wanted the ICAC, that they wanted the ICAC to come uh, in to okay. provide that. I, and I, I, and yeah. I understand that as well. Yeah. But my question is, does ICAC have the legislative power to do that? And I've got a question mark over that right now. Yeah, look, so do I. I mean, I don't know. I'm just based on what they said, that there was ongoing oversight. I mean, this is what they told the community. This is what they told Territorians was that the ICAC was providing ongoing oversight. Because maybe this police. is why Bruce McClintock has responded to you saying, what the hell are you talking about? Uh, you know, I, that was mm -hmm. never ICAC's responsibility. No, but you get back to what he said. Like he even, when he's explaining what Fleming did that day, he said that the commissioner, Fleming, to explain his independent oversight role, attended a public rally in Alice Springs. Yeah, what does that, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I've got to have a look at the act in more detail, but it doesn't, yeah. on the face of it, I couldn't see straight away whether ICAC has the power of oversight. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, but I mean, why Why are they sending that? And then just to placate the stupid people in Uenda Mula, I think. <laughs> or the rest of us stupid Territorians. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. But, you know. But look, I mean, what else did uh, the commissioner do in that thing? You know what I mean? It wasn't, it wasn't like <laughs> he was conducting himself uh, uh, extremely well. I mean, you yeah. know, the first thing he did was that blunder in terms of the, um, the statement that he made at the rally. Um, and I'm, I'm questioning in my own mind, Chris, whether he said, yes, we'll go, we'll, you know, because I can see the commissioner actually saying that, yeah, of course, so, you know, we'll go and do that oversight. And, you know, from what you're saying, the police wanted that oversight. Mm -hmm. My question is, well, did they, they have know. the power to do it? Because yeah. to me, the act is all about, um, you know, uh, looking at uh, whether conduct has been done properly after the fact. Not mm. during the fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, no, you that's a great point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So then, yeah, I mean, look, and that's a question that, that I'd sent Riches, but Riches, again, gave me this yeah, unusual statement about how he commits to explaining the role played by his office. One would assume that his office then played a role. I appreciate that should be clarified, and I will do so. I intend to do that at the conclusion of my current investigation. So... All right. Yeah. Well, let's leave that alone. Yeah. Little off topic, Leon. Um, just looking at the size of that ICAC manual, maybe you could get them to convert it to an audio book for you. It's <laughs> <laughs> so funny, mate. <laughs> Chief Minister's Office and Department suppressing release of public information for 134 days. But yeah, been in power for six years, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they've been doing it much longer, but on this particular bit, yeah. So this was, uh, of course, the uh, uh, the the scandal that hasn't been resolved yet to anyone's satisfaction, including ours. But basically, it was about you guys remember when uh, the chief minister hired his brother-in-law or somebody did for him to be his deputy chief of staff, and during the last election, that brother-in-law. Uh, 
signed off on $40,000 worth of taxpayer-funded travel during the election against the caretaker rules at the time that uh, the people like that in those positions couldn't do it. Should have been done through the department, but he was acting as the chief of staff. So we had done the FOI and nobody would have known about that unless we had done the FOI and we got these records back that showed that he had been the one making the approvals. So we did a series of stories on that late last year. Uh, but there was an issue when we get into this thing with the FOI. It's one that took too long, as it always does. It's supposed to be 30 days. I can't remember how long that took. But when we got the information back that we used to to write those stories uh it wasn't all there everything we requested was not there including i think a big one was uh uh communications that would show who ordered the taxpayer funded travel so we know that that neve approved it but who ordered it now there was also uh inexplicably they had redacted names from some of the flights and then tell us why uh and usually when you make the decision you explain your reasons in a letter uh and there was also a failure to provide all communications among staff and ministers about travel and uh and exactly what they knew about it so we asked for an internal review uh they had 30 days to complete the internal review it's now been 134 days since that formal request, that was the other day. So what they do is they just kept writing to me saying that it would unreasonably interfere with the operations. Now their legal responsibility to review would unreasonably interfere with the operations of the department and the office. So it's 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 DCM and C department, chief minister and cabinet and the chief minister's office that we had these documents from and they're sending us pretty much the same letter within a day or two of each other. And they just continue to kick it down the, the road another 30 days. Uh, but what it means for us is that, look, I've, I've actually had DCM do an internal review for me on the same day because they got angry with me about something. And she said, and I wrote and said, this was uh, the other woman there was involved in the ICAC thing, Karen Batten. And I said, yeah, can I just get you to do the internal review, please? Here are my reasons. I don't think you did your job properly on this. I don't think you answered things or provided the information. And she said, yeah, the internal review is done. You consider this done. Now, once that's done, I can then go to the information commissioner if they still refuse to, to give us the information we want. I can't do that in all the time they've got me in this kind of purgatory now. Um, I can make ah. a complaint. I can make a complaint that, that they're taken too long but i it, it doesn't get to the information it's just then they launch something and then that'll take longer for them to get through their complaint what i want is the review to be done and they can uphold their original decision and not give us that but then i can go to the information commissioner and say look it's in the public interest that we get all of this all of the information we requested and either they get it for us and then worst case scenario if we can't reach an agreement it goes to ntk which again is like so far down the road now it would take such a long time but they're continually you know for four months here just five months um not doing their job and saying that it would unreasonably interfere with the operations of their office well this is what your office is supposed to be doing well i think i think you should ratchet it up chris yeah, I mean, I mean, the the public. So, who who's the commissioner? Oh, sorry, is it, is it Brendan Monaghan? Yeah, it's Brendan Monaghan, information commissioner. Monaghan, yeah, yeah. You should definitely, uh, you know, because this is a this is an act. This is a right. This is a democratic right here, and yeah. these guys are trampling all over that by, you know, not not doing their job in my view. Yeah. 
Oh, it is. It's and it's anti-democratic conduct, which falls under the ICAC Act as well at this point, because there's no reason for them not to do their jobs properly. So, and you know what? And I'll be honest, and I told their people that too, in a response to them that look, I'm not sending it, but you guys, as the uh, officers in charge, Jody Ryan and Emily Beresford Kane, you now know of anti-democratic conduct, and you know you should probably refer this to the ICAC if your office can't get it done. That should have gone into uh, a response, <laughs> I would have thought. No. None of your business. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, no. Didn't hear from them on that. Uh, yeah, look, I think this is a sensitive issue for them because everybody's implicated in this, right? The department should have been the one signing off on this travel, taxpayer-funded travel during the election campaign, and that would have been Jody Ryan. So why didn't she? Why are we now going through this? And then the other thing is that, like, the responsible officer in the office of the chief minister for freedom of information is Emily Beresford-Kane, Gunner's chief of staff, who makes the decisions, we think, but they don't name anybody anymore. They've removed their names, so we don't know. But that's a conflict of interest. You can't have your chief of staff also um you know determining this and and then when the reviews come and that's the other thing the the internal review is supposed to go to someone separate than the person who made the original decision and we don't think that's happening because mm. they're not named so yeah look this is there's other similar internal review requests too and so we'll be coming out with with more information for people on that and where it's at and and where we go next with it because yeah there there are some other options mm. we'll see okay. and not that anyone cares but that's another name that i love too chris the chief of staff's name there to say it again for me emily beresford oh, yeah. that sh- <laughs> should, be, should be a 007 uh confidant or maybe something out of austin powers that name love it <laughs> all yeah, right pretty good Let- Let's head to our final story before we get to a riveting mixed job of the week this week. Um, what sounds like it should be out of a uh, 90s angst field rap album, straight out of the KKK playbook, the CLP, CLP branch calls for hooded cane masters to deal with the crime problem. Please explain. I, look, that's what I've been asking the country Liberal Party for the last <laughs> 48 hours, 24 hours. Is what the hell? What has Leah been on about this? Has she gone to ground? What's that yeah, mean? well, that was unusual. It took them a while. Like, I sent them questions on this because I said, look, this, from what I understand, this is in direct response to an email that you had sent around to the party branches seeking ideas for policies and this is what came out now let's get into this and i uh, the image that we have here i think just explains it uh just that but here's what happened so a clp branch has circulated a proposal to fight the territory's high crime rates by flying in quote hooded cane masters from singapore to apply six doses at a time to anybody sentenced to less than a year for breaking the law but the key is that they all need to be wearing masks to quote protect them from possible revenge attacks <laughs> from ninjas yeah because they, they, they whoever thought this up well we'll get into it some more but it was like okay here's the thing what if they come after us after we beat them and then somebody else said hey what if we wear hoods <laughs> and they said hey, that's a good idea mm-hmm. so the hooded disciplinarians now the hooded disciplinarians uh could alternatively be locals they don't have to come from singapore 
could alternatively be locals <laughs> and used in the remote circuit court system, the proposal added. So, quote, sentences are carried out quickly and effectively. Uh, it's an idea the party's president has called, quote, an option to our real problems, uh, but was later criticized by political opponents as being, quote, straight out of the KKK playbook. Yeah. We we know that hoods aren't particularly uh, considered a, a fond accessory in the Northern Territory due to previous occasions as well, Chris. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which which previous? Is that uh, I, I shan't be mentioning. Well, yeah. the, uh, the, uh, the 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 um, youth detention centre. Uh, right. Yeah. Well, the spit hood. Well, that's yeah, brought yeah. up in here. Somebody else connects that thought, but uh, yeah. Yeah, geez, I thought you were saying, like, some people said, like, yeah, this is uh, making me uncomfortable. This is the CLP kind of going back to their roots here. Putting yeah, yeah, back to the good old days. And, uh, and <laughs> the good old around. boys. <laughs> yeah, Canaan Indigenous people or something. Anyway, look, the proposal was sent to the Litchfield branch last week by a party member, but it was circulated amongst members for consideration. It also went to Leah Finacchiaro. Uh, in response to an email, she sent the party seeking feedback on their sentencing amendment bill. It was introduced last sittings that would see automatic jail sentences for anyone assaulting frontline workers. So Leah declined to comment on the proposal or rule out considering it. Hmm. Uh, the plan, which was sent from this member named Jeff, stated that the hooded cane master's initiative would be, quote, a halfway measure between traditional indigenous punishment and European punishment. It would also save money, he argued, and would only kill offenders a little bit. Uh, he then kill. Tells story. Well, he tells a story about how he had witnessed traditional punishment being applied in his younger days. Two rows of men stood with nola nolas at arm's length to each other. The young man concerned ran between the two rows of men who hit him as he ran through, he wrote in the email to members. He was not to be hit in the head, as it was said, we only kill him a little bit, not kill him dead. Wow. That event was never spoken of again. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> we shall never speak of this again. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, that uh, struck me funny there. But he said, yeah, it was ever spoken of again. And the young man bore no malice against those who punished him. However, Jeff continued that the cane uh, now would be used to beat people in doses of six only at a time on a Friday afternoon or evening. If the recipient has a job, otherwise anytime. <laughs> the idea, the idea is, he says, the idea is they have the weekend to get over it so as to not interrupt their work schedule or family life. Like, I've got to tell you, this is way more thought out than the KKK. Like, this, this is the whole thing. It's like, this wasn't just like somebody getting drunk and sending them. Like, yeah. this is, like so anyway, so now the best line, I think, is the, the following one, though. He did also crunch the numbers a little bit, and he suggested that the proposal could keep people out of jail, saving the territory $72 million a year. Um, but here's the line. He says, the cane masters could be flown in from Singapore and hooded to protect their identities, or a pool of, say, five locals all hooded on the day to protect them from possible revenge attacks. I prefer the FIFO approach, you said. <laughs> I'm, just picturing, I'm just picturing the small town, right, where everybody knows you, everybody knows each other. No, I, I'm hey, hey, Bill, I recognise those shoes. 
I'm picturing something completely different. FIFO guys from Singapore on Singapore Airlines takes his cane on onto the aircraft, the violin case, <laughs> and they put it in the overhead locker. Yeah, that puts it together. <laughs> Just to clear it. <laughs> no one touches the violin case. Oh, Jesus. Wow. I no, mean, no, look, does. it's pretty serious for those copying the cane, let me tell you. But just the just the delivery of it, Chris. Bravo, son. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is like, I, look, anyway. So I does, thought. Does Jeff have a last name, by the way? He doesn't uh, yeah, like to disclose it, that. It wasn't in. It wasn't in the email. But I think everyone knows who he is. But anyway, I don't think mm. it was necessary <laughs> in this instance. Um, he said the proposal was warmly accepted by Little yeah. Branch Chair Danny Skews. Yeah. So Danny Skews <laughs> wrote in an email to to Leah and other party members that this idea was quote well and truly overdue because. <laughs> 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 because the justice system is broken and requires drastic measures to fix. Well, yeah, I think some people agree with that. Uh, as can be seen with this push to stop the use of spit hoods, how else do they propose to stop these horrible cockroaches? They sleep all day and come out at night from spitting on the people we ask to control them. Excuse row. Wow. Yeah, so you're getting into some... Mm. Unnecessary commentary, maybe there. Uh, CLP President Fiona Darcy went to her and uh, said, "You know, what are you making of this?" She came back and she said, "It's being considered." Wow! Um, wow, that's an interesting response. Yeah, her, her line is, "This great Australia is a democracy, and all of us can discuss and consider many options to our real problems." She said in response to questions from the anti-independent. Now. Uh, we ran that story. The story went up this morning and it ran for a bit. And then um, the Liberal Democrats and Sam McMahon put out a, a media release on this. And this is straight out of the KKK playbook. So Sam McMahon here. Now, oh, they're against it. Yeah, yeah okay. turning on her old party and saying that her new party does not support corporal punishment, such as the, quote, the caning of indigenous children by hooded cane masters. <laughs> <laughs> and called the CI, CLP's idea abhorrent. She said, Australia wow. has not had corporal punishment in any form for decades. And this proposal is straight out of the KKK playbook. Uh, Liberal Democrats Solomon candidate Kylie Bonani also denounced the proposal. We're all frustrated by the lack of action on crime in the territory, she said. And it is one thing to punish someone, but it is an entirely different thing to physically cane them. Uh, McMahon said she was shocked that CLP President Fiona Darcy had refused to rule out the policy idea. That's not democracy in action. That's stupidity in action. Stupid <laughs> uh, um, is a stupid does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, like the, the the whole problem here, and Leon, you kind of, I think you've, you've, you've we've talked about this before. When we put this up, and I was worried about this. Like when we put this up. You're going to have people saying, I mean, this is a ludicrous idea, right? Like, this is just ridiculous. But uh, when we put it up, I, I, I knew the people would be saying, this is a good idea. Well, we're going to do something. I like to see the bleeding heart liberals, whenever the left is down south, <laughs> spill their Chardonnay over this. This is the kind of stuff we should be doing, but good luck. And, uh, and I thought, Jesus Christ, you know, but this is the problem here is that we are all frustrated by the lack of action on crime. 
And the, the gunners now put us in this position where these crazy ideas will actually be considered because there has been a lack of action on anything else. There's been nothing to try and curb this crime that continues to get out of hand. That is more and more every day uh, in Alice Springs. We know how terrible that is. And some of the stories we ran just this week about what was going on there is just horrific. And then up here, too, in Darwin, we've got these issues. And when you have that vacuum of leadership, that there's just absolutely nobody taking responsibility for this. There's no solutions being offered anymore. The people will gravitate toward these ideas, I think. And and that's dangerous for a lot of reasons. And like I think you had said that, Leon, right, about how He's creating this void where someone like a Trump type character can come in with a lot of awful, racist, hurtful ideas that will people will will, will gravitate towards because they're fed up. And if you if Gunner doesn't get the people are fed up, I mean, go and read those comments on the story on the Facebook page. I and mean, this is where it's getting. He's now such a poor leader that people are starting to go down this thing, like we should put on masks and go cane people around town. Like, I'm just troubled by that. That that, And the more people didn't say like, wait a second, this is absolutely ridiculous. You know, we do need, we do need solutions here, you know, um, and we're not getting them, but this is why we need strong leaders in here. This is why we need to be having that conversation with everybody so that it is a bipartisan thing to that the crime doesn't become a political issue anymore. Because uh, someone's going to come in and explain. And why the hell did Leah Finocchiaro not reject this? Hmm. Because I'm thinking she's just playing politics. She wants to see. Well, well, I wonder how territories will think about this. And it seems Fiona Darcy's also kind of put it out there. Now, maybe tomorrow, well, it's Good Friday, maybe at some point they'll, <laughs> in Parliament, I bet you Labour will turn it around on them and bring it up. And yeah. they'll say, oh, no, no, we never endorsed that idea. But clearly they're putting this out as a feeler. It was a draft without prejudice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I'm really worried about that. I, I, it's just, it's dangerous. And, um, God, it's just another one of those issues that we're no closer to solving here, especially under this government with this leadership. But Chris, just to clear up one of the points that you uh, made before, um, all the problems in Alice Springs are fixed now because they had a seven-day blitz, so it's all good. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah, just for Gunner to be there. Yes. uh, Yeah, we were looking into that a bit more. Yeah, he was definitely there, and uh, yeah, some people had some concerns about... <laughs> they only show up to clean up when the emperor's arriving. Uh, and But they did a really terrible job. And I was reading an ABC today. Thank, thank you for using the word terrible there, Chris. <laughs> yeah. 40, they sent like, what, 40 cops down from Darwin? Well, like, I just know, guys, just from talking to cops, that that means that's 40 less cops from Darwin. Um, yeah. We'll be out there on the patrol. Like, so we are now a lot more vulnerable in our homes in Darwin when they all go down Alice Springs for those blitzes. And then you saw what happened. I mean, we had, a, there was a pregnant woman who was sexually assaulted while walking in the afternoon in Alice Springs. Like, my God, like the, this is just, it's getting out of control. And you had another incident where they, um, they arrested uh, some teams for stealing a car and they then got bailed, like sent back out under the Youth Justice Act. And one of them stole a car later that day, went and stole another car. This is just this week, like in a day. Anyway, 
man, we got to find a solution here. And this is going to take leadership. And my God, and like this, like I said, the CLP is not contributing anything with this kind of nonsense. Well, um, we should move now to mixed job of the week, boys. I've got a doozy for you. Um, given, you know, what we've been talking about uh, throughout this episode with budgets and, uh, you know, excessive amounts of spending, we've currently got a uh, job for the Regional Executive Director, Barclay, being advertised by the Department of the Chief Minister and Cabinet, uh, paying a cool... Two hundred and thirty-seven thousand to two hundred and fifty-four thousand. Um, uh, Unbelievable! You, you need to provide leadership in the public sector, ensuring directions of coordination of whole government policy. I don't actually know what that <laughs> means. It sounds to me like the person that was paid to do that job is now outsourcing it to someone else to actually implement it, similar to the uh, the previous job we talked about a few weeks ago. But 234 grand, boys, there you go. No wonder you can't find people in your own businesses. Oh, wow. What was the, what was the title again of that? Was The title of that is... Regional Executive Director Barclay. Yeah. So the Barclays is a very small region. Imagine when it pays if you're doing it in Darwin. You might get a mill. <laughs> yeah. My God. Yeah. Anyway. Wow. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Anytime this, these people are talking about leadership after what we've just discussed, <laughs> just that's a trigger word for me now. There is no leadership <laughs> I did. I did have to laugh because one of the – desirable criteria for this job that pays a minimum of 230 whatever it is grand per year is a tertiary education that's <laughs> desirable if not no no problem is that right really that's not even required that's it's not just... required it's just desirable yep it's well, more de- it's more it's desirable that you're related to someone <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> oh man so many yeah. good jobs. But why are we losing these positions too, I wonder? Like, yeah, somebody was saying that. Like, who's who's vacating a $237,000 yeah. a year job? Somebody who's making yeah. three fifty now probably yeah, got yeah. promoted to be the economic commissioner or some nonsense. Well, and we interviewed someone a few weeks ago, Leon. Correct me. Oh, I just can't remember who it was, but they're on a call 650 or something. Huh. Uh, that would have been the vice chancellor. Oh, it was too. Yeah, so that's semi-government at least, isn't it? He's, he's not he making as much. He, he as actually Max. said he was overpaid. He's yeah, not he making. Did. did he say he was making that though? Because I yep. thought he said yes, he, he made did. less than Maddox. Yep. Oh, Six fifty. Yeah, that's what Maddox was making, hmm? and he was supposed to make less. Anyway, did you guys did you guys play that? Yeah, he's probably getting six forty nine, Chris. <laughs> yeah, I thought he made a big deal about that too. Anyway, but, but in, in, he, in fairness, he did say he's actually overpaid. So I'm not sure if that means he's had an immediate adjustment. But yeah, the public record says it's about six fifty. So what's he doing about that? Like, is he well, giving something? Well, charity? he's not handing it back at this stage. I know yeah, that. Much. But it's, well, then he's, he would be giving it to charity or helping out people in the community somehow, doing something positive for the rest. of yeah, I, I can't confirm no. or deny that, Chris. Yeah, okay. You'll have to dig deeper on that one. <laughs> I'll have a <laughs> Gentlemen, uh, happy well, Easter to the both of you, my friends. Yeah, before you go, though, <laughs> Chris, did you get a chance to listen to the uh, story that, or the interview we did with Peter Grister? Oh, no, my God, no. I've been too great. I've been, Woody's been sick all week, so it's just been me in the office, and we lost another person, so... 
I will listen to that this weekend and enjoy that very much. But he's been sick. Didn't he just have COVID? What's wrong with him? Yeah, I don't know. Can we say that? But anyway, he can tell you. But he's, <laughs> he was not in the office this week. We, we know he's corrupt, but is he unwell as well? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was not in this week. And I've got to say, Chris, um, on last week's podcast, you highly recommended uh, the podcast, which I think you initially said was the best podcast produced in the Territory, and you quickly <laughs> corrected yourself and said equal best. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. Lost in Larimer? Yeah, it's excellent. Yeah, Kylie Stevenson. It's, it's a great yarn, except for the person that it's about, right? So for everyone else, it's actually a great story, yeah. well told, you know, great theatrics, and, and uh, you know, she, she reads it very well. So Yeah, and just the comments from those real people who were there in Larma, those characters yeah, that yeah. are all fully developed. You know, as a journalist, that's why some of us get into it, that um, we don't have much imagination. Well, we want to be writers. And so yeah. then you go into journalism where the characters are already developed for you. But I think when Kylie kind of went down to Larma, and she'd already had connections to the place, right? Correct. And reading, I think that writing. really helped. Yeah, it did. Yeah. And yeah. she had known Patty. She had actually met Patty before. Yeah. So she offers, she's the best person to write the story. Yeah. And yeah, she just does a fantastic job telling it. So it's really good. And, and I, the book, the book Larima too. It's very good. And I did have to think there'd be plenty of publicans out there that'd be desperate for another Patty who's prepared to work all week for just one case of beer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a, it's an interesting story. It's definitely yes. a, a territorial story. It's great. Yeah. Well, um, Peter Gross has got a lot of things to say about you towards the end of the podcast yeah uh, excellent we, none of a good unfortunately Chris, <laughs> yeah, anyway. well hey fair enough i can take criticism <laughs> we, we, we got into it and i forgot to mention though that he he actually has uh written a book called yeah. um the fifth casualty i think or, or something like that hang on let me just i did it my way <laughs> no no no, no. Just that for you for the listeners that are interested because I, I meant to, oh yeah, it's the fifth casualty. In fact, that's exactly what it's called. And yes, I did download the audiobook, <laughs> um, but it is re- it is read by Peter Grester, which makes it even better. Mm-hmm. And my God, Chris, he describes yeah. the hellhole that was uh, the Egyptian prison that he was in for four hundred days, mm. uh, yeah. and, uh, and the way the justice was meted out. Yeah. And I got to tell you, man. Um, we're lucky to be living in this country, but if we don't stand up and call things out here, yeah. one day we may wake up and find ourselves in not a dissimilar position. Yeah, absolutely, and that's with, good. With hooded yeah. cane masters in yeah. control. That's what I'm thinking, stuff like that. Absolutely, that's a good way to end that. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah. All right, Excellent. have a good one. Yeah, thanks, guys. We'll see you next week. That was Chris Walsh from the NT Independent Online Newspaper. Weekends with Walshy back again next week on the Territory Story Podcast Weekend Edition. We'll catch you then. And in the meantime, have a great Easter. You've been listening to the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms or go to territorystory.com. The Territory Story Podcast. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.